Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. They made Marvin Gaye ask what's going on, but do inner city blues also make you want to holler? Today on the pod, we take a look at migration, mega cities, and mental health. We'll be looking at how urbanization is changing the world. 300 million people have moved from the countryside to the cities in China over the last 10 or 15 years. That's a huge mass migration. How urban environments are affecting our mental health? It's a classic question because if you look at the intellectuals concerned with nature of life, modernity, modernization in the late 19th century, they too were very concerned about the urbanization that they saw. The thorny problem of stress. Everybody knows what stress is and nobody knows what stress is. And what policymakers can do to cope with the growth of megacities. So it requires urban planners to begin to think about spaces in the city as kind of habitats in which human beings live amongst all sorts of other organisms. Stay with us. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Wherever in the world you listen to this right now, I've got some questions for you. Can you see cars where you are? Can you see buildings or trees or open space? Do you hear birdsong? Is it noisy? Is it busy? Can you smell pollution? And finally, are you feeling stressed? Chances are many of you are in a city right now. And if that's the case, you share something in common with over half of humanity. In fact, the United Nations predicts that by 2050, two thirds of the world's population will live in cities. Policymakers are starting to grapple with the economic and environmental consequences of this mass urbanisation, but relatively little attention has been paid to the implications for human health and mental well-being. But perhaps that's about to change. Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at new research on the intersection between migration, megacities and mental health. We're also discussing what policymakers can do to help make the cities of today and tomorrow a little less stressful for the two-thirds of humanity who will live in them by the mid-21st century. Earlier, I caught up with Professor Nicholas Rose. Nicholas is a professor of sociology and head of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London. Trained as a biologist, a psychologist and a sociologist, Nicholas's work explores how scientific developments have changed conceptions of human identity and governance and what that means for our political, socio-economic and legal futures. I think it's a really fascinating discussion and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. Don't forget you can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or give us the thumbs up or angry face or whatever else you choose on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. But for now, here's that discussion with Nicholas Rose. Nicholas Rose, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, recently, you've been looking at cities as a way of approaching human health and well-being. What is it about city life in particular that grabbed your attention? Well, there are a number of big demographic shifts going on across the world, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, there's ageing, the demographic profile changing, and 
which is one thing that I'm particularly interested in. And the second key thing that I'm interested in is urbanization, is the fact that it's a cliche now that more than half the world's population lives in cities. So the urban experience, whatever that means, and of course there are thousands of different sorts of cities, but something about the urban experience is becoming the typical experience for humans. And much of that growth of cities has been uh, through migration, but not the migration that catches the headlines, which is migration across borders, although here in Australia a lot of the migration has been migration across borders. But if you look at Africa, if you look at Southeast Asia, if you look at Latin America, the migration that we're seeing is migration from the countryside to the city. What are the consequences for human beings, not just of living in cities in general, but of those people who are moving in their hundreds and thousands and millions from the countryside into the city. In China, 300 million people have moved from the countryside to the cities in China over the last 10 or 15 years. That's a huge mass migration, probably the biggest that we've seen proportionally since the late urbanization in the late 19th century. So that's what has caught my attention. And, and it's, a, it's a classic question because if you look at the intellectuals concerned with uh, the nature of life, modernity, modernization in the late 19th century, they too were very concerned about the urbanization that they saw in London, in Paris, in Berlin, what happened when people moved into these big cities. And, and their way of thinking about that, we can learn a lot from their way of thinking about those questions. And try and rework them in our age with different kinds of migration and with different kinds of intellectual tools from the life sciences and the social sciences. Now, an interesting tool there is, uh, you, I understand you've been involved in the development of an app uh, which aims to sort of understand how city living might affect mental well-being. Can you tell us a bit about that app and what you hope to achieve through that? Absolutely. So um, I came across this app when it had already been developed although it was developed by a colleague of mine at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience uh, at King's College London, called Andrea Michelli. Um, and he was working with a team of designers, with urban, with architects and app designers. It was called the Urban Mind App. It is called the Urban Mind App. And it's designed to poll individuals at random intervals throughout the day over a long period and ask them a series of questions. It asks them questions about whether they're relaxed, about whether they're daydreaming, about whether they're feeling pressured, about whether they're feeling stressed, about how their mood is and so on. And it also asks them questions about where they are. Can they see cars? Can they see trees? Can they see open space? Can they see buildings? Can they see other people? And it also asks them questions about they're at the atmosphere. Can they smell things? Can they smell plants? Can they smell pollution? And at the same time, uh, it asks them to take a picture of where they are um, and to take a soundscape of where they are. So and Andrea Michelli, who actually works in the early psychosis unit at the Institute of Psychiatry, was interested in this partly to see whether or not one could pick up early signs of people feeling very stressed in urban environments. They put this on their website, and to their surprise, it was taken up by thousands of people across the world, including by us. We were working in Shanghai, and we thought, what a terrific thing, because all the migrant populations, the urban to rural population in Shanghai, they all have their smartphones, and they all use their apps. So we started working with Dr. Michelli on this app 
uh, taking it to the next stage because that was the pilot phase and we're hoping that that app will be up and running in about a month's time. We will translate it into Chinese and uh, use it in the Chinese situation but it will be available for people to use wherever they are. It's, a kind, it's like the quantified self apps only it has this very specific focus on stress and the experience of living in urban environments. And what is it you're actually hoping to get out of that? What kind of information might it, might it, uh, might it throw out? Well, from our point of view, um, and, and there's a, there are many, many things that, that, that are, the other researchers are wanting to do, but let me just focus on our point of view. So we're carrying out this research on mental health, migration, and megacities. What are the mental health consequences of the flows of migrants from the countryside into megacities, Shanghai, Lagos, Sao Paulo, etc., etc., etc.? Um, and in that research, we're looking at many things about how migrants experience their life. We're doing street-level ethnography to explore the way in which they use space and time. We're looking at their employment situation. We're looking at levels of stress using quite uh, conventional measures of stress, taking cortisol samples. We're looking at their mental health status using standard mental health uh, measures. But we're also trying to see how their levels of stress, their levels of pressure, their levels of relaxation are shaped by their movement across urban space. And the wonderful thing about the apps is not only do they poll people about how they're feeling and what they can see and they take a picture and they take a soundscape, but also through the wonders of GPS we can know exactly where people are um, and how they're moving, whether they're, which part of the city they're in. Um, and we can begin to put this together. And the advantage of the app is that we can combine this very detailed street-level ethnography, very detailed work on how migrants use their streets, with much more general large-scale populations, because the, the experience of apps everywhere is that if it's an interesting app, thousands of people will pick it up and use it. So whereas we can look at a small number of migrant, of the rural to urban migrants in a couple of streets in, in, in Shanghai, maybe two or three hundred we can do mental health assessments, the app users will be in, in thousands. Um, and it will enable us to get much more comparative data because the app asks, were you born in a city? How big was the city? When did you move to the city? How long have you lived in the city? And a bunch of other demographic information about thousands of people that we would not otherwise be able to sample. So we'll be able to compare big cities, small cities, how long people have lived in cities, etc., 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 and build in some, some comparative work. Um, and we're hoping to do this, as I say, we're doing it currently in, in Shanghai, thanks to a grant from our ESRC, our UK Research Council. But we're hoping also to start this work in Sao Paulo, which is another big migrant city, and in Toronto, which is a migrant city of a different sort, with a very big Chinese population, but largely who have actually migrated from China or from Hong Kong into Toronto. How do most countries currently approach the issue of stress, and how should they be approaching it? Well, stress is a very interesting term. One of the famous stress researchers, Hans Selye, says, everybody knows what stress is, and nobody knows what stress is. And I think that's quite right. We use stress as a lay term all the time, and there's a long history of stress research, uh, but it sort of foundered for a while because nobody knew what stress was. Was 
being crowded stress. Well, sometimes people want to go out into the big city and be with loads and loads of people, and that's not stressful at all. And sometimes they're with loads of people, and it is stressful. Sometimes noise is stressful. Sometimes you, well, younger people want to go to parties with a lot of noise. So is stress objective or subjective? And for a long time, that was a real problem. And, and although there were some arguments about how stress got into the body, they were quite problematic, and I could go through that history, but I won't. But more recently, uh, a new wave of stress research has emerged uh, that says, to put it very simply, that it is the brain that drives the stress response. It's how an individual perceives, codes, and understands their situation as stressful. Once an individual perceives, codes, and understands their situation as stressful, that is to say, it's stressful for me, in my culture, with my history, with my way of thinking, that that drives a, an adrenal response, a response of hormones, that prepare the individual to cope with that stress. Now, in normal circumstances, the stress is short-lived, but if the stress goes on and on, if it's persistent, if the individual can't escape from that stress, the hormonal cascades from that stress, which uh, trigger off various brain and bodily responses, continue and continue, and the individual moves into a situation of toxic stress. And toxic stress, especially for kids, but also for people stuck in cities where they feel themselves constantly under threat of violence. That's one of the uh, persistent findings in relation to development of psychosis in cities, that people who feel themselves under threat of trauma and violence don't actually have to be physically attacked, but to feel themselves under threat without the possibility of movement. That's very highly correlated with... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The development of psychotic and other mental health disorders. So if we can begin to develop that understanding of stress as to how perceptions of stress, when they're uh, extensive, when there is no release from them, produce a situation of toxicity which affects the developing child and the developing brain, we can then perhaps begin to work out where the stressors are and what one might do, say, in urban environments to reduce those stressors. And just as a tiny example from a completely different field, there was a, a, a report recently about children in uh, uh, Syrian children in refugee camps, which argued that they had many both physical and psychiatric disorders and argued that those were the consequence of what they called toxic stress. That is to say, the kids feeling they're in a consistently stressed environment from which they felt they had no possibility of escape. So I think there are policy implications of our new understandings of stress. And, and, and going back to an earlier thing that we talked about in, in this discussion, you can see the way in which stress, the way in which it's now being understood, is something which involves both social scientists and anthropologists, seeing how people come to experience, code, understand their situations as stress, and neurobiologists, seeing how that stress gets into the body and what its consequences are, and perhaps policymakers understanding that situation, seeing how they might, in small ways, organise the urban environment, 
provide spaces of safety, spaces of, of comfort, spaces of relaxation, which might mitigate stress in urban situations. Is stress seen at the moment too much as an individual issue? Uh, do you think policymakers should be starting to think about stress as more of a kind of public good that they need to address? Absolutely. I think, you know, that is uh, one of the uh, challenges is to recognise that, yes, of course, individuals experience stress and individuals suffer from toxic stress, but the conditions under which stress emerges, the conditions under which certain sectors of the population are persistently stressed, whether they're people, women isolated at home with threats of domestic violence or whether they are people in very crowded situations or whether they're people working in workplaces where the uh, conditions are not at all conducive uh, to low stress, that those, those are collective conditions and they produce collective ills and therefore the response to them the attempt to produce low-stress environments, to put it just at its simplest, is, an, is indeed a, a public good. And if you begin to do the kind of work that uh, health economists do, to look at, uh, this is not work I feel particularly uh, kind of uh, uh, keen on, because it says, OK, we can put a price on everything, but if you want to put a price on mental distress, if you want to put the price on the of the burden of mental disorder on the exchequer, you will find that stress-related or minor mental troubles produce a huge burden on the exchequer in terms of days lost at work, in terms of visits to the general practitioner, in terms of the use of pharmaceuticals to reduce stress and so on and so forth. So there is a, a, a real economic cost to these kinds of conditions and therefore if there's no other incentive there is a real economic incentive to begin to understand them and mitigate them. Are there any immediate steps that policymakers could do to address these levels of, uh, of stress that you know of now, even before the sort of data comes through? Well, I think there are some obvious things that one can think of. And I should say that stress is only one of the pathways. There are many pathways. Mentioned pollution and the question of uh, diesel pollutants in the atmosphere is, is another one. The, the exposome, as the term is now used, to try and capture these various exposures that people have to toxic chemicals, uh, to toxic microbes, to toxic, uh, to toxic fumes and so on and so forth. So I think that policymakers should attend very carefully to these ways in which, to use the cliche, adversity gets under the skin and what research is showing us about what adversity does to recognise that, yes, of course, adversity in childhood is uh, particularly problematic, but there are things one can do here and now to kind of mitigate it. Um, there is insufficient... This would not be a surprising answer to you, I'm sure, but there is insufficient research on these kinds of socio-neural or neurosocial relations in urban spaces. What are the stressors? Because they're not so simple as poverty, deprivation, racism, etc., etc. They are all involved, but I think one needs a closer understanding of those stressors so that people who are responsible for urban design, design of public spaces, can begin to recognise that public spaces are not just good for trade, or for people to sit around and have a coffee or to walk about and you know, do whatever people do in their social life, but they actually are conducive to health and the absence of uh, planning of a city in relation to health, uh, the absence of taking health 
mental health and physical health as a kind of priority in thinking about how you plan roads, about how you plan spaces, about where you put your green space, about where you put your buildings. The absence of attention to that, I think, has carried a real cost. You mentioned earlier the massive influx of people into urban areas in China. And China is reportedly facing a mental health crisis. Uh, You've called it an epidemic of stress. Um, Japan and South Korea are routinely cited for some of the highest suicide rates in the world. Uh, What's behind the apparent high levels of stress in East Asian countries? And is there anything in particular that policymakers in those countries can do about it? Yeah, I should just say the epidemic of stress statement was not mine. It was in the China Daily, so I was quoting that. Um, And again, stress becomes an easy word to use to encapsulate the travails of high levels of modernization and transformation. I think there are differences between Japan and China. So there are very specific transformations that are happening so rapidly in China that it's understandable that people find those rather difficult to cope with, not knowing how to live in a rapidly developing consumer society with radical transformations in the workplace, uh, with China moving from uh, 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 an economy which is based on the high levels of production of very low-value goods to to a service economy, to a white-collar economy, to an information-driven economy, a highly competitive school system where every every child takes takes a similar exam on one day and that going to determine their fate. There are many things within China that one can see to use stress in a lay term are likely to be stressful. I think the situation in Japan is different. The Japanese economy is changing quite rapidly. The move away from the lifetime of uh, lifetime secure work in Japan, which has been much, much commented on, uh, has changed the conditions of work, especially for Japanese men. And uh, uh, an excellent uh, uh, colleague of mine, Junko Katanaka, who's done work on workplace stress in Japan, has examined the way in which this idea of workplace stress in its relationship to depression and suicide has become a major problem in Japan. And Japan's quite interesting because they've always had a bit more of a social understanding of mental disorders. So they're beginning in in Japan to be there's beginning a, a great concentration on how workplaces can be stressful and what work uh, what employers can do to reduce the level of stress for their workers in the workplace. I'm not an expert on on South Korea, which I would imagine was closer to the Chinese situation than to the Japanese situation. Japan, of course, has one of the other huge transformations going on in it. I mean, the number of people in Japan who, li- who are over 100 years old is, is high and is growing. Uh, so there are centenarians who are being looked after by people, in, by their children, who are in their 80s. So you know, there are a whole series of other transformations that one needs to look at if one's thinking about how these uh, demographic, sociological, economic shifts, mutations that are happening a lot in Southeast Asia are impacting on stress and on other dimensions of the the social determinants of psychiatric disorder. Just finally, Nicholas, looking ahead, the planet might have up to 10 billion people by 2050, with two-thirds of them living and working in cities, some of these these megacities that you talked about. Are you optimistic that societies and governments will be able to manage that kind of change? 
I think it will require activist governments. I think it will require foresight on the part of governments. And I think it will require very careful consideration about how one does cope with these increasing numbers in cities, which involves everything from mobilities, how do people get around in cities, from pollution and the levels of pollution. It also involves things which I haven't talked about, which are gaining increasing interest, which is microbiomics. That is the, the fact that human beings live in, uh, in a synergy with uh, multiple millions of microbes inhabiting their gut, and they have major consequences for health and illness. So it requires urban planners to begin to think about the city, uh, the spaces in the city as kind of habitats in which human beings live amongst all sorts of other organisms with noise, with pollution, etc., and how they might make these habitats a little bit more conducive to a, to a good life. And that's, that's why I think that some of this research that we're doing does bear on some of those classical questions. What's a good life in the city? What's justice in the city? How should people live in cities? In China, where cities are growing so fast, one does begin to see, as the cities are built in, in days, in weeks, in months, one begins to see a greening of the cities, new cities which really take seriously how you deal with building green space onto, into and around buildings, for instance. Um, so I think we need quite a bit more creativity and perhaps this research can play a tiny little role in that. Are you optimistic that we will get that creativity? I think there's no point in being pessimistic. I'm hopeful. I'm maybe not optimistic, but if you're not hopeful and if you don't try to do your whatever you can to try and encourage that creativity, then probably you should stop being a social scientist as I am and go off and enjoy yourself in some other ways. So one has to think that increasing understanding of the ways in which human beings live, of what makes for good lives, of how policymakers can take that up. One has to think that that will, in the end, serve to improve the human condition, in a, not in a massive revolutionary way, but in whole lots of little micro steps that make people's lives a little bit better and a little bit more bearable. Lots of big questions there. Let's hope our uh, governments around the world can rise to find the the answers for them. Nicholas Rose, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. That was Professor Nicholas Rose talking with me about mental health, migration and the megacity. If you're interested in this topic, make sure you check out the Urban Mind app, which Nicholas spoke about in that interview. There's a link to it in the description of this podcast. You can also find there a link to Nicholas's website where he has plenty of information about his really fascinating work. Don't forget you can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or give us a like on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Policy Forum Pod will be back again soon where we'll be continuing the conversation on public health and speaking to a very special guest about global sexual and reproductive health and rights. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, don't forget to keep up with public policy in the Asia-Pacific at policyforum.net. We'll see you next time. Cheerio. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.